Welcome to the new season of Witness to Yesterday. This season, we have new hosts joining me. If you'd like to learn more about our hosts, please see our website. Today's episode features Nicole O'Byrne interviewing Jim Phillips on his book, A History of Law in Canada, Volume 2. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the season. this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Nicole O'Byrne, and I'm a legal historian at the University of New Brunswick. Today, it's my great pleasure to interview Jim Phillips about his co-authored book with Philip Gerard and Blake Brown, A History of Law in Canada, Volume 2, Law for a New Dominion, 1867 to 1914. Jim Phillips is one of Canada's most respected and influential legal historians. He is a professor at the University of Toronto's Law Faculty, History Department, and Centre for Criminology and Sociolegal Studies. Before he became an academic, he served as a law clerk to Madam Justice Bertha Wilson at the Supreme Court of Canada. He has written about property and trust law, which he teaches, but most of his work is on Canadian legal history. Among other work, he has co-edited four volumes in the Osgood Society for Canadian Legal History series of essays in the history of Canadian law. He also organizes the Osgood Society's Legal History online workshop, which showcases the work of established and newly emerging legal historians. As someone who's benefited immeasurably over the years from Jim's leadership and tireless enthusiasm for legal history, it's a real pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you. is part of an ambitious three-volume series on the history of law in Canada. I encourage listeners to check out the fascinating interview my colleague Greg Marshallin did about the first volume with your co-author Philip Gerard. You can find it on the Witness to Yesterday website at www.champlainsociety.ca. Jim, can you tell us briefly about the series and why you and your co-authors decided it was needed? Well, that's a fairly easy question to answer, actually. Legal history has been around for probably 40 years in a serious vein. And um, we used to say, whenever we were asked, what should I read about Canadian legal history? And we would say, well, I can't give you any one thing to read. So it depends on what your interest is in. Uh, So I'll give you four or five books and that kind of stuff. And so we simply decided enough had been written that it was time for us to um, uh, produce a synthesis. And that's what we decided to do. What we were sure of when we started was that it would be the best series synthesizing all of Canadian legal history because it was the only one. This volume, which covers Confederation to the start of World War I, ends with an intriguing sentence and I'll quote, the current volume may be seen by future historians as being about an aberrant age, a period of discontinuity between eras marked by pluralism. Can you explain what this means? Yes. So in volume one, we uh, analyzed the law 
down to 1866 by saying that uh, for most of that period, Canadian legal history was marked by pluralism, not just the traditional uh, English law, French law distinction, but also indigenous law. So there were three um, forms of law operating in Canada. Perhaps I'm projecting, but my sense is we're now moving very much into a period where we are being much more pluralistic than we have been in the last century. And therefore, uh, in the long run, uh, historians 50 years from now may certainly see the period in, in for, certainly for the first 50 years after Confederation, as an aberrant period in which pluralism was downplayed and uh, to some extent disappeared, but never entirely. Volume 2 covers an extensive period of time and various subjects such as property rights, criminal law, indigenous peoples, language rights, labor and employment, women and minority rights, just to name a few. What major themes emerged from your research? I think undoubtedly the major theme is the attempt to assimilate indigenous peoples, to strike their law out of Canadian law and all the other kind of things that were done in relation to indigenous peoples. That's certainly the main theme. Indeed, that takes up four chapters of the uh, 16 that are in this book. But there are other obvious themes. You know, people used to call this period in Canadian history the period of nation building. And, um, of course, w w whether you want to use that term or not, um, there certainly are elements of that. You had to mould, for example, the judicial systems of what were initially uh, three colonies and initially four provinces with uh, a number of other regions and provinces that didn't even have judicial systems when uh, the period starts. So that's an important theme. Legal, legal system building, I think, is uh, perhaps the phrase I might uh, use. Yeah. What were the biggest challenges researching and writing this volume? Did you find anything particularly surprising during the course of your portion of the research on the book? I think there's no question that the biggest challenge, and this is true for trying to write any topic in Canadian history, is federalism. Right? We're a federal state, and people write books about British history, which are of a unitary state, um, and so it's much easier. One law, one set of courts, etc., etc. Of course, people also write books about other federal states, such as the United States, which they have American law in the title, but are in fact about Massachusetts or New York or occasionally California. So a big challenge was that we were genuinely trying to include every province and just to be clear about this, as with volume one, that the geographical area covered is those parts of northern North America that are now part of Canada, but weren't um, at the time. So in this period, we also discuss Newfoundland from time to time, even though it didn't become a province until 1949. So as far as the surprising things, there are actually a lot of these. Um, some of them are 
are quite small. For example, if you know anything about your constitutional law, uh, you know that the federal parliament, the federal government, appoints the superior court judges. And everybody assumes that if you appoint a superior court judge for British Columbia, they have to come from the British Columbia bar and the same for every single province. But in fact, the Constitution doesn't say that. It only says that the judges of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Ontario, and Quebec must be appointed from their bar. It would be kind of unthinkable now for the federal government to appoint as a judge of the Supreme Court in New Brunswick somebody from Ontario, but constitutionally possible. And of course, in the early period, in the period that we're looking at, there were lots of judges appointed who were not from provincial bars, uh, often because, as in the case of, say, Manitoba in 1870, there wasn't a provincial bar. Same thing for the Northwest Territories Supreme Court. Uh, but it was also even the case that there was a British Columbia bar when British Columbia joined Confederation, but the uh, third judge appointed to that court was a New Brunswicker. So that was interesting and su surprising. We also were struck by how much borrowing there was between jurisdictions. So again, um, whereas people might have looked at, say, occupational health and safety legislation in Ontario, they haven't looked at it anywhere else. Or if they've looked at it in Nova Scotia, they haven't looked at it anywhere else. When you look at it across a number of provinces, you suddenly find all these acts are the same. They're all based on the first one that did it often. So there always is in history lots of little um, oddities and fascinating things that, uh, that strike you. The book deals extensively with the history of Indigenous state relations. During this period, the state used various means to regulate and assimilate First Nations and Métis people. Can you describe how the law was used during this period to replace traditional Indigenous legal orders? Well, that's a very large question, but I can give you a few of the main points. The Indian Act, of course, was a very important piece of legislation, although it wasn't the first piece of legislation dealing with uh, Indigenous peoples. In fact, something called the Enfranchisement Act was of 1869, and that was about the, vo the vote, but about much more than the vote. It was about making Indigenous people live the kind of life, have the kind of values that qualified you to be a citizen and to have the vote, and in particular, being a private property owner, which of course is fundamentally different to the way in which Indigenous peoples hold reserve land. So the Enfranchisement Act gave people a portion of the reserve, and this was carried on into the Indian Act. It gave Indigenous people who opted for it a portion of their reserve, which would become a fee, sim fee simple, that is a full private property ownership, which could, of course, then be sold to somebody else who was an Indigenous. So partly as a way of breaking up the reserves, but also, much more important to it, it was a way of making Indigenous people uh, acquisitive, private property owners, wanting to, to own their own piece of land and not to live in a communal 
uh, economy. Other similar provisions that were in the Indian Act were the replacing of traditional leadership structures, so doing away with hereditary leadership and uh, imposing elective government. So the federal government envisaged reserves being like uh, municipal councils. In fact, they stopped calling them chiefs, called them chief councillors, and they had the and they had sub-councillors, and they divided reserves into wards, and, and all this was a kind of a, a training for democracy. So, again, an attempt at indigenous culture. There were also a number of provisions which tried to make it illegal to perform uh, indigenous ceremonies, including uh, dances, the, the various prairie sun dances, and the potlatch in British Columbia, and... Um, they didn't work, but they were criminalized, and so they and there were some pros- prosecutions. Of course, the biggest part of all of this were residential schools to uh, take. So rather than uh, sort of convert adults through all these various methods, um, the belief was that you had to get them young. Um, you had to, if I can use the expression you know, take the Indian out of the Indian, and it was best to do that as young as possible, take away their language, their means of, uh, methods of dress, um, their a- attitudes towards generally, the influence of their families, uh, fit them for a trade, um, etc. So that was the, the, uh, the most far-reaching aspect of this. The volume covers the settlement of the Western provinces, how was the law used to implement the national policy, the federal government's railway, homestead, and immigration policies? Well, I think this comes down to land. So uh, I, I teach property law, so it's a lot, lot of that's about land law. And uh, it's really all about the land. Um, I mean, the, the West was a huge area of land acquired by Canada uh, in 1869 and 70. And... Then they had to make it into, uh, so if you like, a Western-style organized um, uh, resource. So the Canada Land Survey, which progressively divided the prairies up into, uh, into townships and sections and quarter sections. And, and so drew lines on, on the map that had nothing to do with the natural topography or what it had been used for. And then, of course, to connect to your other points, um, the, uh, a, a lot of the railways were built with uh, generous land grants, that is, giving the railways not just the right-of-way, but the land uh, uh, either side of the right-of-way, which they could sell off and, uh, and use to create new towns, which would then be have people who would then use the trains for, for transportation of the goods they needed, etc. Um, and, of course, the um, Dominion's Land Acts, uh, homestead policy, the granting of uh, free land to immigrants. So everything that you mentioned there, the national policy, the railways, uh, immigration, comes, comes back to uh, having the land to... Uh, to use in various ways, directly or indirectly, to facilitate the development of all of those uh, trends. The drafters of the Constitution Act 1867 
envisioned a very different country than what it had become by the beginning of the First World War. Key figures such as Prime Minister John A. Macdonald thought that Canada would be a highly centralized federation with provinces playing a subordinate role. Can you describe some of the reasons for the radical shift that occurred? And why does this matter? Yes, I can. I think the first thing to say is I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that the British North America Act was supposed to create a highly centralized federation. There are some people who argue otherwise, but they're really just trying to reach back in the past to try to justify their current view of what the federation should look like. So I don't think there's any doubt about its origins. So what changed it? Well, I think there are two things not unrelated. Um, One, of course, was that the provinces weren't necessarily that happy about that. So in the later 19th century, there was a, a major movement called the Provincial Rights Movement, mostly led by Ontario, which did what it could to try to wrest power away from uh, the federal government. And, and, and the method they did was by promoting interpretations of the British North America era, the open-ended uh, powers given to the federal and provincial governments. Um, you can either read them narrowly or you can read them uh, more broadly. And uh, that will depend upon... Um, how centralized the country would end up in. The uh, people who were promoting a more decentralized version um, had the support of the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. Uh, A bunch of English judges sitting in London who didn't know very much about Canada um, and also took the view that... that you could understand the British North America Act by simply reading the words on the page. And that was, in part, a product of the way people thought about um, uh, law as a science, as 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 something very straightforward and not subject to changing interpretations. Uh, We think about law, uh, most people think about law uh, very differently now. So they not only had, a, I think, a, a, a rather narrow view uh, of the document, that, but they also said that the British North America Act should be interpreted just like an ordinary statute, any other statute. So same principles of interpretation as if you were dealing with the Income Tax Act or the Subdivision Act or, or anything else. Whereas the British America Act, of course, was a, was a constitution. And that's one of the disadvantages of having your constitution be the, a statute of another jurisdiction. Even though women were still denied the right to vote by the end of the time period covered in Volume 2, the legal status of women evolved during this time period. Can you describe some of the major advancements in women's rights during the period? Well, I think there's no question that the uh, major change during this period was in uh, married women's property law. So that leads me to go back a little bit and tell your audience that um, the law made very few, common law, English law made very few distinctions between men and women. 
they made profound distinctions between married women and men in the same category as as single women. So when a woman got married, um, she became subject to what was called coverture, or the doctrine of the unity of legal personality, so that her property, for the most part, became her husband's. Now, I'm, I'm simplifying a bit here, but uh, let's leave it at that. She had very few independent rights to property, no independent right to contract uh, or to sue for tort in the courts, etc. Um, and over time, uh, through this period, it started before Confederation, but continued through this period, and in different different provinces at different times and to different degrees, women became independent as to property and able to launch their own independent actions in court, which is, of course, an important measure of civil status uh, without having their husbands do it on their, on their behalf. And you did see, there are some empirical studies done, an increase in the amount of property owning by married women during this period which obviously the law, the change in the law achieved its purpose. So that was, I'm sure, the biggest change. There were other changes. They weren't quite so large. So, for example, in 1867, the father's rights to custody of the child were absolute, even to the point, I should say, of being able to say in your will that if I die first before the child's mother, I can choose who the guardian is in my will. That did begin to change towards the late 19th century when it was kind of coupled with a greater concern about children's rights and society began to be confronted with the possibility that perhaps neither parent was any good and children should be <laughs> removed. Um, and once you, once, you, once you, though, had uh, undermined the authority of the father, you could go in both directions. Mother got more rights and the state also got more rights in the process. The book explores labor and employment history and the rise of trade unionism. How did the law mediate the relationship between employers and employees during the period? Would the answer one-sidedly be okay? Unions were legal. Uh, that, was, that was confirmed in the uh, early 1870s. But there was nothing like the later regime uh, which attempted to put limits on what both parties could do um, in the, uh, the, the labor context. Um, there was no right to, jo to join a trade, trade union, for example, as we have now. No provisions preventing employers from uh, just not recognizing unions. No, no method for recognition. So when industrial conflict came, it often came in order to get recognition in the first place and to have the uh, employer be forced to recognize the union. There wasn't much in the way of, of, of sort of state support for an even-handed uh, approach. Um, in addition, uh, the courts 
were generally not kind to unions. There was lots of cases about whether unions were conspiracies under tort law, not under criminal law, tort law conspiracies to injure trade. And then employers could get injunctions to prevent, uh, say, strike action or picketing action on the grounds that it might be uh, a conspiracy to interfere with contractual relations or to injure the trade uh, of a business. And these injunctions didn't have to be the final say. The courts would often grant what were called interim injunctions while the case was being argued fully. But once you grant an interim injunction and prevent a strike or prevent picketing, you take all the steam out of the labor movement's attempts to do anything. So uh, in, in this case, uh, temporary victories for employers often turn into permanent victories. During the time period, the law was used to discriminate against minorities, such as the Asian community in British Columbia. However, minority groups also use the courts to challenge the law. Are there any cases that strike you as particularly important? Well, there really aren't very many cases where the law succeeded. So it's true that the, uh, there's a remarkable amount of anti-Asian discrimination in British Columbia. Not so much in the rest of the country, but uh, that's because there weren't very many Asians. Um, so British Columbia tried to uh, prevent Chinese immigration it uh, imposed a series of tax and other restrictions. In fact, one act simply taxed somebody on the basis that they were Chinese. If you were Chinese, you had to pay a tax. And um, if you were not Chinese, you didn't have to pay that tax. Whereas taxes usually levied, of course, on what we consume or what we earn or, or what we own, but not simply on the basis of, of being a, uh, a Chinese uh, person. Now, there, there were a small number of successful court challenges to this in British Columbia. Um, quite interesting and uh, remarkable cases, which were based on the judges saying, if I can put it simply, this just isn't British. These are citizens under the law, and uh, you shouldn't be able to, to do this. Those are unusual cases because before we had the Charter of Rights, we didn't have a constitution that protected um, those kinds of what, what we would call civil rights. Um, but the judges found it in the British tradition. But this was short-lived, involved about four or five cases. And for the most part, the court's attitude towards uh, what we would call uh, discrimination, either discriminatory legislation or discriminatory acts by people, was either in the one case, um, Parliament is supreme or the provincial legislat legislature is supreme, or in the other case, a person's freedom of contract and freedom of property meant they could do what they want. So if somebody wanted to say, was running a bar, could say, I don't want any Chinese people in my bar. Now, nowadays, you can't do that because of human rights codes. But in those days, people would say, well, it's, it's, it's his or her property. property. Uh, he or she can make 
contracts to sell services to, to whoever they want um, and choose not to uh, for any reason whatsoever. So the common law, generally speaking, uh, was not something that stood in the way of discriminatory uh, legislation. What can we expect from volume three in the series? More of the same in the sense that we will continue with the same themes that were in volume one, that were carried over into volume two. So we will look at um, lots of different areas of law. Uh, we will uh, certainly be, be looking at the development of the courts and the legal profession, uh, stuff like that. There are different landmarks in volume three, of course. For example, the abolition of appeals to the Privy Council in 1949 makes the Supreme Court of Canada the Supreme Court in Canada. Um, so that's a big difference. We will also certainly in the latter part of the 20th century, I think, be looking at a massive revival uh, in, in indigenous rights uh, predicated on the inclusion in Section 35 of the Constitution Act of 1982. In that sense, I think that's part of what I meant at the beginning when I talked about um, seeing the first 50 years after Confederation as something of an uh, aberrant. You know, there are other interesting dramatic changes. The way number of women in the workforce, number of women in the professions. Now, all of this is post-World War II, so perhaps changes less uh, prior to that, but um, but they bring the the uh, the welfare state, Medicare. Um, there, there's a great deal of change in the post nineteen forty five period. Jim, thank you so much for talking to us about your book today. Thank you. Our guest today has been Jim Phillips. He's the co-author with Philip Gerard and Blake Brown of A History of Law in Canada, Volume 2, Law for the New Dominion, 1867 to 1914, published for the Osgood Society for Canadian Legal History by the University of Toronto Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by sharing this podcast on social media. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as the consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name's Nicole O'Byrne. This interview was recorded on November 8th, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team who also support the Champlain Society. Mm -hmm.